0: Chapter Twenty Four of The Golden Silence. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading done by Jules Harlock of Mississauga, Ontario, Canada. The Golden Silence by Alice Muriel and Charles Norris Williamson. Chapter Twenty Four. It was midnight when Neville's car ran into the beautiful oasis town, guarded by the most curious mountains of the Algerian desert and They were at their strangest, cut out clear as the painted mountains of stage scenery in the light of the great acetylene lamps. Stephen thought them like a vast half-burned Moorish city of mosques and palaces over which sandstorms had raged for centuries leaving only traces here and there of a ruined tower a domed roof or an ornamental frieze of the palms he could see nothing except the long dark shape of the oasis among the pale sand billows but early next morning he and neville were up and out on the roof of the little french hotel while sunrise banners marched across the sky Stephen had not known that desert dunes could be bright peach pink, or that a river flowing over white stones could look like melted rubies, or that a few laughing Arab girls, ankle-deep in limpid water, could glitter in morning light like jeweled ories in celestial gardens. But now that he knew, he would never forget his first desert picture. The two men stood on the roof among the bubbly domes for a long time, looking over the umber-coloured town and the flowing oasis which swept to Bosada's brown feet like a tidal wave. It was not yet time to go and ask questions of the Sayyid whom Neville knew. Stephen was advised not to drink coffee in the hotel before starting on their quest. We shall have to swallow at least three cups each of Café Mauer at the Sayyid's house. AND PERHAPS A DASH OF TEA FLAVORED WITH MINT, ON TOP OF ALL, IF WE DON'T WANT TO BEGIN BY HURTING OUR HOST'S FEELINGS, Neville SAID. SO THEY FASTED AND FED THEIR MINDS BY WALKING THROUGH BOSADA IN its FIRST MORNING GLORY. ALREADY THE OLD PART OF THE TOWN WAS ALIVE, FOR ARABS LOVE THE DAY WHEN IT IS YOUNG, EVEN AS THEY LOVE A YOUNG GIRL FOR A BRIDE the englishmen strolled into the cool dark mosque where heavy eastern scents of musk and benzoin had laid all night like fugitives in sanctuary and where the roof was held up by cypress poles instead of marble pillars as in the grand mosques of big cities by the time they were ready to leave dawn had become daylight and coming out of the brown dusk the town seemed flooded with golden wine wonderful bubbling unbelievable gold with scarlet and purple and green figures floating in it brilliant as rainbow fish the saeed lived near the old town in an adobe house with a garden which was a tangle of roses and pomegranate blossoms under orange trees and palms and there were narrow paths of hard sand the colour of old gold which rounded up to the center and had little runnels of water on either side. The sunshine dripped between the long fingers of the palm leaves to trail in a lacy pattern along the yellow paths, and the sound of the running water was sweet. It was in this garden that the Sayyid gave his guests the three cups of coffee each, followed by the mint-flavored tea which Neville had prophesied and when they had admired a tame gazelle which nibbled cakes of almond and honey from their hands the Said insisted on presenting it to his good friend m over the cups of coffee mauer. they talked of captain cassim ben halim but their host could or would tell them nothing beyond the fact that ben halim had once lived for a little while not far from Bosada. He had inherited from his father a country house about 50 kilometers distant, but he had never stayed there until after retiring from the army and selling his place in Algiers. Then he had spent a few months in the country. The Sayid had met him long ago in Algiers, but had not seen him since. Ben-Halim had been ill and had led a retired life in the country, receiving no one afterward he had gone away out of algeria it was said that he had died abroad a little later of that the sayyid was not certain but in any case the house on the hill was now in the possession of the sayyid of Ain d'erdre sidi iliad ben sliman a distant cousin of ben halim said to be his only living relative then their host went on to describe the house with the white wall, which looked down upon a cemetery and a village. His description was almost precisely what Mooni's had been, and there was no doubt that the place where she had lived with the beautiful lady was the place of which he spoke. But of the lady herself they could learn nothing. The Sayyid had no information to give concerning Ben Halim's family. He pressed them to stay and see all the beauties of the oasis. He would introduce them to the merry-boat at El-Hamel, and in the evening they should see a special dance of the Ouled Na'ils. But they made excuses that they must get on, and bade the Sa'id good-bye after an hour's talk. As for the gazelle neville named her josette and hired an arab to take her to algiers by the diligence with explicit instructions as to food and milk swarms of locusts flew into their faces and fell into the car or were burned to death in the radiator as they sped along the road towards the white house on the golden hill they started from Bossada at ten o'clock and though the road was far from good and they were not always sure of the way, the noon heat was scarcely at its height when Stephen said, There it is. That must be the hill and the white wall with the towers. Yes, there's the cemetery too, answered Neville. We're seeing it on the left side as we go. I hope that doesn't mean we're in for bad luck. Rot, said Stephen promptly, yet for all his scorn of Neville's grotesque superstitions, he was not in a confident mood. He did not expect much from this visit to Ben-Halim's old country house, and the worst was that here seemed their last chance of finding out what had become of Sadie Ray, if not of her sister. The sound of the motor made a brown face flash over the top of the tall gate, like a jack popping out of his box. "La El Elciade?' asked Neville." Is he at home?" The face pretended not to understand, and having taken in every detail of the stranger's appearance and belongings, including the motor-car, it disappeared. What's going to happen now? Stephen wanted to know. Neville looked puzzled. The creature isn't too polite. Probably it's afraid of Romillas and has never been spoken to by one before but I hope it will promptly scuttle indoors and fetch its master or someone with brains and manners. Several minutes passed, and the yellow motor-cart continued to advertise its presence outside the Saeed's gate by panting strenuously. The face did not show itself again, and there was no evidence of life behind the white wall except the peculiarly ominous yelping of cabile dogs. "'Let's pound on the gate and show them we mean to get in,' said Stephen, angry-eyed. "'But Neville consoled waiting. "'Never be in a hurry when you have to do with Arabs. "'It's patience that pays. "'Here come two chaps on horseback,' Stephen said, "'looking down at the desert track that trailed near the distant cluster of mud houses, "'which were like square blocks of gold in the fierce sunshine.' They seem to be staring up at the car. I wonder if they're on their way here. It may be the Saeed riding home with a friend or a servant, Neville suggested. If so, I'll bet my hat there are other eyes than ours watching for him, peering out through some spy hole in one of the gate towers. His guess was right. It was the Saeed coming home, and Maeddine was with him for lilla m'barka had been obliged to rest for three days at the farmhouse on the hill and the cad's guest had accompanied him before sunrise this morning to see a favourite white mahari or racing camel belonging to sidi eleade ben Sliman, which was very ill in care of a wise man of the village now the mehari was dead and his maeddine seemed impatient to get back they were riding home in spite of the noon heat. Maeddine had left the house reluctantly this morning, not that he could often see Victoria, who was nursing M'Barka, and looking so wistful that he guessed she had half hoped to find her sister waiting behind the white wall on the Golden Hill. Though he could expect little of the girl's society, and there was little reason to fear that harm would come to her, or that she would steal away in his absence. Still, he had hated to ride out of the gate and leave her. If the Said had not made a point of his coming, he would gladly have stayed behind. Now, when he looked up and saw a yellow motor-car at the gate, he believed that his feeling had been a presentiment, which he ought to have heeded. He and the Said were a long way off when he caught sight of the car and heard its pantings carried by the clear desert air he could not be certain of its identity but he prided himself upon his keen sight and hearing and where they failed instinct stepped in he was sure that it was the car which had waited for stephen knight when the charles q came in the car of neville Kiard, about whom he had made inquiries before leaving algiers maeddine knew of course that victoria had been to janan el juad and he was intensely suspicious as well as jealous of night because of the letter victoria had written he knew also that the two englishmen had been asking questions at the Hotel de la casbah and he was not surprised to see the yellow car in front of the ciades gates now that he saw it he felt dully that he had always known it would follow him. If only he had been in the house, it would not have mattered. He would have been able to prevent Knight and Kiard from seeing Victoria, or even from having the slightest suspicion that she was or had been there. It was the worst of luck that he should be outside the gates, for now he could not go back while the Englishmen were there. Knight would certainly recognize him and guess everything that he did not know. Maeddine thought very quickly. He dare not ride on, lest the men in the car should have a field glass. The only thing was to let Ben Sleeman go alone, so that, if eyes up there on the hill were watching, it might seem that the Seade was parting from some friends who lived in the village. He would have to trust Eliade's discretion and tact, as he knew already he might trust his loyalty only the situation was desperate tact and an instinct for the right word the frank look were worth even more than loyalty at this moment and one never quite knew how far to trust another man's judgment besides the mischief might have been done before ben sleeman could arrive on the scene and at the thought of what might happen Maeddine's heart seemed to turn in his breast. He had never known a sensation so painful to body and mind, and it was hideous to feel helpless, to know that he could do only harm and not good by riding up the hill. Nevertheless, he said to himself, if he should see Victoria come out to speak with these men, he would go. He would perhaps kill them, and the chauffeur too, anything rather than give up the girl now. For the sharp stab of the thought that he might lose her, that Stephen Knight might have her, made him ten times more in love than he had been before. He wished that Allah might strike the men in the yellow car dead. Although ardent Muslim man as he was, he had no hope that such a glorious miracle would happen. It is those men from Algiers of whom I told thee, he said to the Sa'id i must stop below they must not recognize me or the dark one who was on the ship will guess possibly he suspects already that i stand for something in this affair who can have sent them to my house ben sleeman wondered the two drew in their horses and put on a manner of men about to bid each other good-bye i hope i am almost sure that they know nothing of her or of me probably when inquiring about ben halim in order to hear of her sister and so find out where she has gone they learned only that ben halim once lived here if thy servants are discreet it may be that no harm will come from this visit they will be discreet have no fear the cad assured him yet it was on his tongue to say the lady herself when she hears the sound of the car may do some unwise thing but he did not finish the sentence even though the young girl whom he had not seen was a Romia, obsessed with horrible modern ideas which at present it would be dangerous to try and correct he could not discuss her with maeddine if she showed herself to the men it could not be helped what was to be would be miktoub far be it for me to distrust my friend's servants said maeddine but if in their zeal they go too far and give an impression of something to hide it would be as bad as if they'd let drop a word too many i will ride on and break any such impression if it has been made ben sleeman consoled him trust me i will be as gracious to these romias as if they were true believers i do trust thee completely answered the younger man While they are at thy gates or within them, I must wait with patience. I cannot remain here in the open, yet I wish to be within sight that I may see with my own eyes all that happens. What if I ride to one of the black tents and ask for water to wash the mouth of my horse? If they have it not, it is no matter. Thine is a good thought, said Ben Sleeman, and rode on, putting his slim white Arab horse to a trot to the left from the group of adobe houses and at about the same distance from the rough track on which they had been riding was a cluster of nomad tents like giant bats with torbid wings spread out ink-black on the gold of the desert a little farther off was another small encampment of a different tribe and their tents were brown striped with black and yellow they looked like huge butterflies resting But maeddine thought of no such similes he was a child of the sahara and used to the tents and the tent dwellers his own father the aga lived half the year in a great tent when he was with his duar and maeddine had been born under the roof of camel's hair his own people and these people were not kin and their lives lay far apart yet a man of one nomad tribe understands all nomads though he be a chief son and they as poor as their own ill-fed camels his pride was his nomad blood for all men of the sahara be they princes or camel-drivers look with scorn upon the sedentary people those of the great plain of the tell and fat-eaters of ripe dates in the cities the eight or ten black tents were gathered round one a little higher a little less ragged than the others the tent of the kabir or headman but it was humble enough there would have been room and to spare for a dozen such under the tante sultane of the aga and his dwar south of el Aguat. as maeddine rode up a buzz of excitement rose in the hive some one ran to tell the kabir that a great sidi was arriving and the headman came out from his tent where he had been meditating or dozing after the chanting of the midday prayer, the prayer of noon. He was a thin, elderly man with an eagle eye to awe his women-folks, and an old burnous of sheep's wool, which was of a deep cream colour because it had not been washed for many years. Yet he smelt good, with a smell that was like the desert, and there was no foul odour in the miniature douar. As in the European dwellings of the very poor, there is never a smell of uncleanliness about Arabs, even those people who must perform most of the ablutions prescribed by their religion with sand instead of water. But the Saharan saying is that the desert purifies all things. The Kabir was polite, though not servile to Maeddine and while the horse borrowed from the said was having its face economically sprinkled with water from a brown goat skin, black coffee was being hospitably prepared for the guests by the women of the household unveiled of course as are all women of the nomad tribes except those of highest birth maeddine did not want the coffee but it would have been an insult to refuse And he made a laboured conversation with the Kabir, his eyes and thoughts fixed on the Said's gate and the yellow motor-car. He hardly saw the tents, beneath whose low-spread black wings eyes looked out at him, as the bright eyes of chickens look out from under the mother hen's feathers. They were all much alike, though the Kabir's, as befitted his position, was the best, made of wide strips of black woollen material stitched together spread tightly over stout poles and pegged down into the hard sand there was a partition dividing the tent in two a partition made of one or two old hayekes woven by hand and if maeddine had been interested he could have seen his host's bedding arranged for the day a few coarse rugs and friches piled up carelessly, out of the way. there was a bale of camel's hair, ready for weaving, and on top of it a little boy was curled up asleep. From the tent poles hung an animal's skin, drying, and a cradle of netted cords in which swung and slept a swaddled baby, no bigger than a doll. It was a girl, therefore its eyes were blackened with coal, and its eyebrows neatly sketched on with paint, as they had been since the unfortunate day of its birth, when the father grumbled because it was not a child but only a worthless female. The mother of the four weeks old doll, a fine young woman tinkling with Arab silver, left her carpet weaving to grind the coffee, while her withered mother-in-law brightened with brushwood the smouldering fire of camel dung. The women worked silently, humbly, though they would have been chattering if the great seedy stranger had not been there. But two or three little children in orange and scarlet rags played giggling among the rubbish outside the tent—a broken brousseur frame or palanquin waiting to be mended, date boxes, baskets, and wooden plates, old couscous bowls, bundles of alpha grass, chicken feathers and an infant goat with its mother. The sound of children's shrill laughter, which passed unnoticed by the parents, who had it always in their ears, rasped Maedin's nerves, and he would have liked to strike or kick the babies into silence. Most Arabs worship children, even girls, and are invariably kind to them, but today Maeddine hated anything that ran about disturbingly and made a noise. Now the Seyyid had reached the gate and was talking to the men in the motor-car. Would he send them away? No, the gate was being opened by a servant. Ben Sleeman must have invited the Rumi's in. Possibly it was a wise thing to do, yet how dangerous, how terribly dangerous, with Victoria perhaps peeping from one of the tiny windows at the woman's corner of the house, which looked on the court. They could not see her there, but she could see them, and if she were tired of travelling and dancing attendance on a fidgety invalid, if she repented her promise to keep the secret of this journey, Maeddine's experience of women inclined him to think that they always did forget their promises to a man the moment his back was turned. Victoria was different from the women of his race, or those he had met in Paris. Yet she was, after all, a woman. And there was no truer saying than that you might more easily prophesy the direction of the wind than say what a woman was likely to do. The coffee which the Kabir handed him made him feel sick, as if he had had a touch of the sun. What was happening up there on the hill, behind the gates, which stood half open? What would she do? His rose of the west. End of chapter 24